study and the application of the truths that are written in this book. So we invite you, Lord, to break the bread of life to us, that we might understand it and that we might obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Every now and then somebody will say, Do as I say, but don't do as I do. But that never works because people will follow your footsteps before they'll follow your advice. That's why we turn to Hebrews 11, because case after case, we have stories of men and women who walk before us and by their footsteps give us a good example of how to walk by faith. Joshua is next on the list, and he is one of the most relevant examples of faith in all of the Scripture. He shows us what it means to be spiritually successful. Now that's an important concept. You can be outwardly successful and be inwardly spiritually a failure. You can have all of the material wealth and be poverty-stricken spiritually. In fact, it is important that you get a correct assessment of your life as God sees it rather than as you see it. That your evaluation is His evaluation. In the New Testament, there is a great story, a sad story, of a fellowship, a church, a New Testament church, that saw themselves one way, but God viewed them another way. They were called the lukewarm church of Laodicea. Jesus said, Because you say I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now Jericho is a story of spiritual success after years of failure. It's a story of overcoming after years of wandering. National Geographic, back in 1978, had a special article about the Double Eagle II, flown by Maxie Anderson the first successful transatlantic balloon flight. They made it from Maine to France. The article said that there had been 13 previous attempts by balloonists all ending in failure. In fact, just the year before, in 1977, before the article, they said that the Double Eagle tried to make it across the Atlantic to Europe, but they ended up in Iceland. Maxie Anderson in the article said, I don't think that you can fly the Atlantic without experience. And that's the one reason it hasn't been flown before. Success in any venture is simply the intelligent application of failure. The great thing about Joshua is that he's 80 years old when he faces Jericho. He's not a spring chicken. But at the same time, he doesn't look back to the past and say, I remember the good old days. Now I'm over the hill, sliding fast. He says, no, the best is yet to come. He has great enthusiasm. What we'd like to look at this morning is the purpose for their deliverance and the power of their deliverance as seen in Jericho. I want you to look back at verse 29, and we'll read verse 29 and 30 together. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, between those two verses is a 40-year gap. What happened during those 40 years? 
Not much. That's why nothing is written about it. It was 40 years of complaining, 40 years of grumbling, 40 years of idolatry, 40 years of wandering. It wasn't until they entered into Canaan and faced Jericho that the first demonstration of faith after 40 years was given. You might say that the 40 years of the wilderness was the longest funeral march in history because the entire generation of complaining Israelites died in the wilderness. In fact, in one day, 24,000 people kicked the bucket. One day, they died in the wilderness. And it wasn't except for the next generation that entered into the land. Forty years of failure. In fact, their cry for most of those years was, Why, God? That was sort of their theme song. God, why did you deliver us from Egypt? Why did you bring us out in the desert? And they just went in circles for 40 years before they entered the land of Canaan. But fortunately, God is a God of stubborn love. You know, I like that about God. He doesn't give up on us. When we fail, when we blow it, when we wander, God doesn't say, that's it, I've had enough of you. God takes interest to bring us back to that place of restoration. A great example of this, of course, is Jonah. Jonah decides that instead of obeying God and going to Nineveh to preach the gospel, he goes 2,000 miles west, buys a princess cruise ticket, and gets on a boat. And he goes 2,000 miles west to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. If I were God, I would have said, let him go. Forget that turkey. There's plenty of other young prophets who are willing to be used. I'll select somebody else. But I'm sure that Jonah's glad that I am not God. Instead, God pursued him by sending a fish to swallow him until he had him backed into a corner and he cried, Uncle. And God delivered him and sent him. This time he was willing and ready to go to do his work. But God doesn't give up. Neither did he with the children of Israel, but they wandered for 40 years. That wilderness was not the goal that God had in mind for them. The purpose for their deliverance was the land of Canaan. The purpose was not to wander. The purpose was to be blessed in a new land. In fact, Moses beautifully sums it up. He tells the children of Israel, God brought you out that he might bring you in. What God has begun, He wants to finish. God is the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, the land of Canaan represents something for us. It's not just a history of military campaigns. It has a special application to you and I this morning. What does it mean exactly? Well, if you would follow the ancient hymn writers, you'd think that Canaan represents heaven, that crossing the Jordan River represents death, and we come into the new land of Canaan, and that's heaven. But if the land of Canaan is heaven, I don't think you want to go there unless you like fights. Because as soon as the children of Israel cross the Jordan River, they're in a new land, there's hostile enemies, there's failures, and there's battle after battle after battle. There's an old song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. When I look over Jordan coming for to carry me home, I see a band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. But Canaan does not represent 
dying and going to heaven. It represents living now a victorious Christian life. A life experiencing the full blessing of God. In fact, if you were to turn, and I'm not going to have you do so, it would take too much time. If you turn back a few chapters in Hebrews, some of the earlier chapters describe for us the analogies or the types of Egypt, the wilderness, and Canaan to the Christian experience. Just as Egypt was a place of bondage for Israel, we were also once in bondage to sin. Just as God raised up Moses to deliver them out of Egypt, God raised up Jesus to deliver us from sin. The wilderness wanderings represent the wandering of unbelief that many Christians enter into. They just don't grow. They don't grasp the promises of God. They go from discouragement to discouragement, desert to desert. The land of Canaan represents mature growth where you overcome those things and you enter into all that God has for you. I would like you to turn back to uh, Joshua chapter 1 and let's look further at some of these types and analogies. Joshua chapter 1. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land that I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, I have given to you, as I said to Moses. The first thing we learn is that the land of Canaan was not earned. It was given as a gift. Hey, the children of Israel didn't deserve Canaan. They grumbled. They complained. They disobeyed. They failed. God said, I've given it to you anyway. It was a gift from God. Perfect analogy, isn't it? Did you earn your salvation? Do you remember working hard for it? Until finally said, all right, God said, I give up. You've earned it. I'll give it to you. Salvation is a free gift. Ephesians says, By grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For a man or a woman to try to earn salvation is an insult to God. Wouldn't you be insulted if you gave somebody a present and they whipped out their wallet and they said, Here, how much do I owe you? Hey, it's a gift. It was freely given. It must be freely accepted. You don't earn it. You just receive it. If you try to earn your way to God by your works, you will drown in your own self-righteousness. I've had lifeguards tell me that the best way for them to save people from drowning when they're in the water is for them to be unconscious. When they're semi-conscious and they're flailing their arms trying to cooperate or trying to do it by their own strength, it's more difficult. So often a lifeguard will either squeeze tight or club the guy one and say, relax, don't help me, let me do it. Salvation is a gift. Canaan was a gift. Secondly, Canaan was a process. They didn't come in and just inherit it all and enjoy it all instantly. It was a process of growth that took a period of years. Listen to what God predicted in Exodus 23. 
He says, I will not drive out your enemies from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. What this did is it kept Israel dependent on God, one step at a time, one battle at a time. Now, God has a place of victory for you, but it's a process. It's not an instantaneous thing. You don't cross the River Jordan into the Christian life and say, All right, now I claim total victory. I claim instant victory. It's not a magic wand that you wave and cast out all the little demons in your life and claim this and say the right words with a few hallelujahs attached to them and have instant spiritual maturity. It's a process. Now, I know people that believe that all you have to do is find those little things that hold you back spiritually. And all those little things are, those works of the flesh, they say, are demons. And you cast out the demon and you'll be free from it. I remember I had a guy that was about five foot one when I was sitting down in a uh, hotel lounge in India. He was on our trip one time and he loomed over me as I was sitting down and he said, I had the demon of intimidation last night but it was cast out and now I'm free of it. Got it? Yeah, right. Spiritual maturity is not a light switch. It's not something you cast out or claim instantly. It's a process of growth. Christian life is not a Popeye episode where you grab a can of spinach, down it, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Takes time. In fact, the Bible calls it a walk. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That is constant, incessant growth. It's a process. Notice next that Canaan was never totally possessed. Verse 4 are the parameters. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites... And to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. If you were to map it out, taking these borders, God gave them 300,000 square miles of land. It encompasses present-day Israel, parts of Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. God says, this is what I've given to you. It's all yours. But Israel never occupied more than 30,000 square miles of land. In other words, God says, I've given you this much, it's all yours. But they only took a tenth of what God originally intended for them to have. There's a lot of Christians like that. God gives us this vast spiritual inheritance and we go, no, I'm just sort of content with just this right here. This is enough. We can be stubborn and not take what God has given to us. It's like the two guys that were riding the tandem bicycle uphill and they got to the top of the hill and the guy in front said, wow, that was a hard climb. And the guy in the back said, yeah, and if I wouldn't have had my brakes on the whole time, we would have rolled backwards. So a lot of Christians like that. God's trying to move them forward and they're going, put on the brakes. Charles Spurgeon wrote, most Christians as to their river of experience are only up to the ankles. Some have waited until the stream is up to the knees. 
A few find it breast high, and but a few, oh, how few, find it a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch. It's up to you. God's given all that stuff, all that inheritance. Find out what it is. Possess it. Possess your possessions. Back in 1915, an elderly man died on Fifth Avenue, New York City. His name was John Wendell, known as America's most miserly millionaire. He decided that he would not risk the disbursement of the family funds, and he stayed a bachelor his whole life. He didn't want to marry anybody and have her off with the dough. He stayed a bachelor. And he managed to keep his five sisters unmarried for their whole life for the same reason. When one of his sisters died in 1931, the local press found out that her estate was worth $100 million. When she died, she was worth $100 million. bucks. Yet, the article in the newspaper said she never owned a car. She did not have electricity in her home. She didn't have a toaster, obviously, no electricity. And she owned one dress that she made, that she wore for 25 years. $100 million bucks. But she didn't enjoy it. So much inheritance. But she never enjoyed it. There's lots of Christians like that. They don't grow. They don't take what God has given to them. They don't take that process to its fulfillment. Either A, because of malnourishment. They don't understand the Bible. They don't know what is theirs. Or two, because of stubborn unbelief and not cooperating with God. Well, that brings us really to our verse in verse 30. We get to Jericho. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Canaan, the new land, was the purpose for their deliverance. Jericho showed the power for their deliverance. Picture it. God has a new land for them, a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. As soon as they cross the Jordan River, they see an obstacle an opposition. Looming in the horizon is this huge walled city of Jericho, a city filled with idolaters, armed idolaters. It is a walled city. Verse 30 makes mention of the walls of Jericho falling down. The cities in those days, sometimes the walls were so wide that they raced chariots side by side on the top of the city walls wasn't just a little wall of a few bricks. These were thick, massive structures with towers and gates. Can you imagine what the children of Israel first thought? They're so excited to enter the land, and they look in the horizon, and on one side they see this massive structure, and on the other side of the river is a group of ex-slaves who'd been desert rats for 40 years going in circles, and they're thinking... We're going to go over there. Can you imagine how intimidating that was? Yet, God didn't require much of them. God didn't say, take up your arms, get out the bazookas, take out the cannons, call the Air Force. God just says, blow your horns and march. God was going to give them the victory. It wasn't their battle, it was His battle. It didn't require much of them. It required that they obey 
and that they believe. Folks, each one of you has a Jericho. Every Christian has some fortress, some impossible circumstance that looms before them. Yours may be an internal Jericho, some character flaw, some disposition of your character, some propensity that you have maybe to get angry quickly or a propensity toward lust or some flaw that has been eating at you, you've been fighting for a long time. You think it's impossible. Others of you have an external Jericho, that person that you've been wanting to get saved for a long time. You've prayed for them. You've brought them to church. You've brought them to crusades. And they just sit there stubborn. And you think, nothing's going to get through. For others of you, your Jericho is a work that God has called you to do. You feel prompted in your heart that God has some task for you to fulfill. But you think, who am I? That's so big. I'm so small. It'll never work. In fact, in Joshua chapter 6, which gives us the details of the battle, it says that Jericho was securely shut up. It seemed an impossible situation. But Jericho was a test. The children of Israel felt the pressure. They were being tested. Will they, by faith, walk around the city walls? Or will they say, God, uh, maybe we'll go upstream a little bit cross the uh, land at some other place in the river. They were tested by pressure. Now Jericho shows us that the ways of God are not always logical. I hope you figured that out by now. That God doesn't always work by human logic. That which is theological isn't always humanly logical. And there's a premise in the New Testament that we should never forget. It says, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. What could be more foolish than an army walking around walls, singing, shouting, blowing horns for seven days? Now, after about the third day, you get tired of it. And about the fourth day, headquarters in Jericho is wiring all the troops on the wall, and they're saying, we don't know what they're doing. They look like a bunch of fools tooting their horns with these priests and the ark going before them. But folks... Throughout the Scripture, this seems to be the case. Time after time after time, God takes the foolish things to confound the wise. God gives a foolish command, and He says, let me test you. Will you do it by faith? A couple of examples. Peter, he fished all night. He was tired. Jesus gets in his boat. He says, Peter, let's go for a little boat ride. Now throw your nets out into the deep for a great catch of fish. Remember Peter's objection? He said, Lord, uh, we've been fishing all night. We've caught nothing. As if to say, look, I'm a fisherman, all right? You're a preacher. That's fine. But I'm a fisherman. I was raised on this lake. The best fishing is at night, and we just tapped the best time of the night, caught nothing. But nevertheless, at your command, let down the nets. That was illogical, but it worked. What about Naaman the leper in 2 Kings? His body is ravaged with his disease. He comes down to Israel. Elijah the prophet takes one look at him. He says, go down to that muddy river, the Jordan River, and dunk seven times. The seventh time when you get up, you'll be cleansed. 
he got upset. He thought, I came all the way from Syria down to Israel to dunk in this muddy, stinking river. The waters of Syria are much better than the waters of Israel. And somebody said, look, you came all this way, do it. So we went down once, nothing happened. Twice, nothing happened. Three, four, five, six, nothing happened. He went down the seventh time, he came up clean. Illogical. But it worked. What about the time when Jesus said to the disciples, take all these 5,000 people, tell them to sit down, I'm going to feed them lunch. With two few loaves and fishes? Illogical. It worked. The cross is very illogical to many people. I don't know how many non-Christians have told me, you mean to tell me that a man's blood 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross saves all men from sin? That's illogical, but it works. You apply the blood of Jesus Christ to your life, you will be saved. might not sound logical to you, but God's ways are higher than your ways. It makes perfect sense to God. I think at this point, since... We're looking at Jericho and the success spiritually that Joshua had. That we should ask ourselves, what were the secrets to his success? We read that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. By the way, I've been to Jericho many times. And if you go to it today, it's a very uneventful trip on your tour to Israel. It's a little dirt mound right now. There's not much left of it. First of all, it's ancient. Second of all, it's been destroyed, the ancient city of Jericho. Archaeology has shown that the walls did fall, as the Bible says, but there's not much to it because God kept His promise. But what made Joshua so successful? Three keys whenever you face a Jericho that will lead to spiritual success. They are so simple. You've heard them before, but I wonder how many of us do it. Turn back with me to Joshua chapter 1. Secrets to spiritual success. First secret is meditation. Meditation on the promises of God. It always begins here. This is what God tells this impressive general. Verse 7, chapter 1. Only be strong and be very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law... The Holy Scriptures, in other words, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Christians must make time, must make time to study the Word of God. There's an old saying that is very true. Seven days without reading the Bible makes one weak. W-E-A-K. Not just W-E-E-K, but you will be weakened spiritually. If you try to live without meditation in the Word of God, you want to be spiritually successful? It begins by meditating on the Scripture. Frankly, many Christians hardly ever read it. Oh, they nibble at it little after-dinner psalm. Or they'll read books about it, but they won't read through it. 
and few still, fewer, will meditate on it. By the way, the word in this text, meditate, means literally to moan, to growl, to mutter, or to muse. It was once a term that was used for the low moaning of an animal. If you've ever gone to Israel and watched the ancient, uh, uh, or the Jews at the ancient wailing wall, the men will take their scrolls and they'll go back and forth, they'll rock, and they'll be saying and sighing the words of the scriptures as they're meditating on them out loud, musing over them. Not just reading a chapter or five chapters, but they'll break it in small parts and they'll meditate on it over and over again. The idea here is to contemplate carefully. Don't just read the Bible. Feed on the Bible. Don't look at it like a fast food. Come in. Give me a quick psalm. Thanks. I'm off for the day. Slow down. Look at it like a gourmet meal. One of my biggest problems is I'm a fast eater. That's okay, but when you go to a nice restaurant, it's about $3 a bite for me. My wife will constantly say, hey, slow down. You see, I grew up as the youngest of four boys, so there was a lot of competition at the dinner table. It was just (laughs) scarf. Don't do that with the Scripture. Slow down. Take it leisurely. Meditate upon the Word of God. Now, a lot of you say, well, I don't have time. I'm busy. If you're too busy for God, you're just too busy. God never calls anyone into an environment or a lifestyle where that person has crowded out the spiritual needs of his soul. It's not God's will. The most important thing is that before anything you face, that you face the Word of God. Otherwise, like Jesus said, your life will be like the weeds that choked out the seed. He said the cares of this world, the care for riches, and the concern for other things choke out the seed and it becomes unfruitful. So first of all, meditation on the Word of God. What was true for Joshua is true for us. Second, adoration. Look over chapter 5, the last part. Right before the battle of Jericho, an interesting meeting occurs. Joshua goes out there to, to survey the land, to survey the walls. He meets a stranger. Verse 13. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Notice, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Most scholars believe this is none other than the appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Because he worshipped him, he took off his sandals like Moses took off his sandals before the burning bush, and he worshipped the Lord. Joshua in worship, in adoration, learned two important factors we learn when we worship. Number one, God is always with us. As we face the battles tomorrow or the next week, God's presence will go with us. So we find out we're not alone. Secondly, we find out we're not in charge. Joshua, as the commander, says, Who are you for, us or them? He says, No, I'm 
the commander. You take orders from me. I'm not on your side. You happen to be on my side. You're not in charge, Joshua. This is my battle, not yours. You're not going to do anything. You're going to toot the horn. This is my battle. You're going out in my strength. And every time we worship in adoration, our focus is aligned. We can face anything, can't we? Public victories come from private visits with God. We're not in charge. It's not our battle. And we're not alone. Meditation, adoration, thirdly, action. It's not enough to just meditate, muse, and worship, but to get out there and fight. Look at uh, chapter 6. Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do for six days. The command, march. Walk around it now. I'm sure the children of Israel would have rather had it the other way. Hey, Lord, look, tell you what. Just have the walls fall down first. Then we'll march and we'll shout for the victory. No, do it before. Meditate on the Word of God. Worship your Lord and then take some action. God never calls us to quiet contemplation only. But those are times to prepare us for the real battle. Rudyard Kipling, the late British author, said, Gardens are never made by singing, Oh, how beautiful, and then sitting in the shade. Get out there and get your fingernails dirty. Go for it. By faith, walk around the city. By faith, the walls came down. Jesus told a story that is very applicable right here. He said, there's two kinds of people. Those that listen to my word and obey them. And then there's people who listen to my words, but they don't do them. Well, that sort of describes the average church, doesn't it? There's people who come to church week after week, and they think, this is something I'm going to live with. I'm going to apply this to my life this week. I'm taking notes. I'm serious about it. I'm going to dig in. I'm going to worship. I'm going to go for it. There's other people who listen. Great. Hurry up. Lunchtime's coming up. Let me get out of here. Jesus said those two types of people are like builders who build homes. One built his house on the rock. One built his house on the sand. The people who listen and obey build their house on a rock. It's firm foundation. The people who listen but don't obey build their house on the sand. Jesus said the storms come through. The rain beats down. The house on the sand will fall with a great fall. The house built on the rock will live forever. Keys to spiritual success, meditation on the Word of God, God's promises. Adoration, your perspective is created where you see God's in charge, I'm not. It's His battle, it's not mine. He's with me, it's all right. And then you march, you go for it, and you do God's work. Well, where are you at? You in Egypt still? Still shackled? Captive by sin? Or... Have you left Egypt? Oh, you're saved, but you're still in the wilderness, wandering around in circles. It's dry, desert. Oh, there's a lot of Christians like that. Folks, evangelism is just the beginning. It's not the end. It's not enough to say, I'm saved now. The question is, are you enjoying your inheritance? 
we grow. John said, I have no greater joy than to see my children now grow and walk in the truth. Do you have a Jericho in front of you this morning? You think, oh, tomorrow morning when I go to work. Wherever you're at, the same medicine is needed. Faith. I believe God. He's faithful. Max Lucado's new book, in one of the chapters he describes the story in the New Testament where Jesus sees a lame man. He's been lame from his birth. Jesus looks at him and he says, get up. Take up your bed and walk. That was an impossible thing for that man to do. But every time Jesus gives us a command, He gives us the power to obey it, right? Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Immediately the man got up, took up his mat and went home. Lucado's comments are these. I wish we would do that. I wish we would take Jesus at His word. I wish like heaven that we would learn that when He says something, it happens. What is this peculiar paralysis that confines us? What is this stubborn unwillingness to be healed? When Jesus tells us to stand, then stand. When He says you're forgiven, then unload the guilt. When He says we are valuable, then believe Him. When He says we're eternal, let's bury our fear. When He says we're provided for, then stop worrying. I love the story of the pirate who ran after and caught the runaway horse of Alexander the Great. When he brought the animal back to the general, Alexander thanked him by saying, Thank you, Captain. With one word, that private was promoted to captain. When the general said it, Thank you, Captain, the private believed it. He went to the quartermaster, selected a new uniform, and put it on. He went to the officer's quarters, selected a bunk. He went to the officer's mess and had an officer's meal. Because the general said it, he believed it. Would that we would do the same. Is that your story? It can be. All the elements are the same. A gentle stranger has stepped into your hurting world and offered you a hand. Now it's up to you to take it. Father, we come before you this morning. We are conscious, Lord, of the great work that you have done in our lives of bringing us to Jesus Christ. Only now, Lord, we don't want to spend time wandering in the desert. You've given us a new land. That's the purpose for our deliverance. Though there may be obstacles, though there may be battles, I pray, Father, that we wouldn't wander out in the desert in unbelief, that we would come to maturity, that we would take all that you've given for us, that we wouldn't shrink back in fear or intimidation, that we would grab a hold of your promises and we would grow from stage to stage, battle to battle, city to city, that whatever we're facing would also crumble before you as we do it in your strength. Lord, I pray for every believer here this morning, new believer, those that just came to faith the other night, those who have been believers a long time, we all need the same thing. To meditate upon your truth, to worship you for who you are, and then to obey your commands wholeheartedly. Give us your strength, Lord, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name.